strike a pose. Hey, all you zombies, mm-hmm. welcome back. Uh, this is our weekly podcast where we discuss about all things kind of surreal and pop culture and cool. Uh, my name is Chris Abel. Over there is Richard Krause. Um, and uh, Walking Dead fan Richard Krause, I think is how you could qualify me. If there was any doubt, if that long break that they took mid-season, if there was any doubt that I had lost interest, it disappeared in the last 20 minutes of this week's show. Yeah. And clearly, that's what we're going to be spending a big chunk of this episode talking about. Walking Dead, um, just fantastic, really, really, really fantastic, and so much that we can really kind of jump into and discuss. We'll of course have other topics afterwards, uh, and we should right off from the the hop say this is going to be a spoiler full episode. If you have not seen last uh, Sunday night's episode, stop, press pause, go off and see it, then come back, and then come back uh, to us later because yeah. uh, we're not holding back. We're not holding back on this episode. No, not after last night's episode. No, 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 no. We are not holding back. No, because uh, it was a fantastic last, uh, especially the last 10 minutes. Really, really lots to discuss. Well, yeah. I mean, as a friend of mine tweeted uh, just after the show was uh, finished, she's like, The Walking Dead started off all, mm, and then went, whoa. <laughs> and that's pretty much really what happened. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of fun to see the reaction on Twitter, because I have to admit, last week, nobody was tweeting about uh, The Walking Dead. Normally, you get a huge tweet storm that was about it, but I wasn't seeing anything on my feed. And then uh, last night, I had, to, I had to wonder what it was like for all the people who bailed early, because the, the first half of the episode, it was, it was kind of slow. You know, I'm sure there were a lot of people like, oh, I got to get up early in the morning, you know, yeah. and then to wake up and find out, no, <laughs> ah, you should have been there towards the end. Yeah. It was and, just, well, yeah, because the first half of the episode just felt like it was kind of just uh, there was a lot of exposition. There was a lot of Rick chasing around after Lori. It was kind of like, oh, come on. Like we, uh, that to me is starting to get just a little bit old. I was thinking, you know, I, I don't know how often I'm going to be able to sit here and watch him having visions of her. <laughs> you know? And yeah. yeah. Well, and we didn't get to talk about this last week because you hadn't seen the episode, but what did you make? Of, of that finale from last week where all of a sudden uh, Rick's in the middle of a conversation and then he starts to kind of lose it and, and there's Laurie in a cascading white dress up in the balcony. Uh, you know, what do you yeah. think of that? Well, I didn't love it. I mean, I, I, I tell you that I, I do think it's an interesting way to kind of visualize the the toll that the stress has taken on him. It shows that he he not only has the weight of the world on his shoulders and he is – uh, uh, dealing with it in some way, you know, it's a strange way, but it is a, his way of dealing with it. But it also, you know, shows that he has had suffered a great personal loss here and yet has to be strong for everyone and, and the tricks that the mind can play, perhaps, you know, that's you know, the, the best way that he can deal with it is uh, through um, these hallucinations. It's, you know, it, it's his mind trying to keep him as sane as possible, I suppose. Um, but you know, I'm not sure that it's a it's a an effect, a trick, an idea that's going to work over and over and over again. I think that it can be effective if sparingly used. So we saw it in the middle of a huge meltdown at the end of uh, the show. You know, a week ago, mm-hmm. and and uh, I saw, I thought, okay, well, yeah, that kind of works. And then in this show again, he's seeing visions of her, and I mean, essentially, what that said to me 
was they needed a way to get him outside the gate somehow, outside the gates of this prison, put him in some kind of risk, have other people come to him and go, come on back in, put them, putting them at risk before the governor starts taking pot shots at everybody. Right. It's, yeah, it's it been... set up to a situation rather than an organic thing that, that felt necessary to me. So, you know, what you, I understand what you're saying. It's sort of like a dilemma that the writers had as the sat down. You know, we've got this impenetrable prison, and yeah. we now have to stage some sort of, uh, you know, danger that's going to happen. And it has to be very quickly because our show doesn't run that very long. Uh, last thing we want is for the governor to have to, you know, try to deal with some sort of siege situation with the prison to try to get in and get after it. Wouldn't it be easier if we could just invent a way, <laughs> an excuse to get everybody outside of the prison, and then, uh, you know, we have this, this you know, intense situation of, of risk and, and problems with the governor. Exactly. And that, see, that, that rung a little false to me, but I forgot all about it. Uh, but, you know, 10 minutes later, because the siege that happens is so spectacular. And, you know, the governor, there was somebody online on, on Twitter uh, saying, you know, you know, the governor is so much better in the books. Like here he's just a, 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 a you know, pasty white kind of, uh, um, you know, weakling or something. They said, and I was like, really? The most badass thing that's ever happened on this show is when the governor, when they, they attacked the prison, and he's standing in front of a truck, and there's people in the truck, and they're firing and stuff. And then there's this volley of gunfire that riddles the side of the truck with with bullets, and it kills one of the guys in the thing. And the and the governor just stands there as though he's in, you know he's he's unable to be hit by any of these bullets. It was so badass that it was like worth you know that 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 moment was worth the kind of crap you set up for me. <coughs> Oh, completely. I, yeah, I mean that was that was sort of the the equivalent of walking with an explosion behind you. It yes, just totally, being yeah. cool to really be affected by. It. But I know I know exactly the scene that you're talking about, where he's standing there and you can see bullets flying around yeah. him. He just yeah, and he then a bullet comes blink. like this close to him. Eh. He doesn't even blink. He's no. only got one eye. You'd be able to tell if he was blinking. <laughs> and instead, he's sort of reveling. In the whole yeah. situation. I mean, it's just, he's completely on top of it. It's just fantastic. Well, see, it's moments like that. You know, you know, you could, you could suggest that I didn't like the, the unreality of having Rick see his dead wife and going after them, you know, as the setup to a situation, you could equate that with the, you know, potential completely unrealistic portrayal of someone who would just stand there and you know, as bullets were flying all around them and not even like not even blink an eye but for me um the the two things are, are quite different and for me like the the governor standing there as bullets fly all around him uh it's one of those great things that you can do in movies and on sort of ambitious television shows sometimes <clears throat> is that without a single word being spoken you know everything you need to know about the governor right now you know that he's a little bit psychotic. You know that he has no fear. You know that revenge is more important to him than his own life, I guess, probably. There's uh, certain things that you're going to learn about the governor from that one 10-second clip, and that tells you all you really need to know about him. And it's, it's, it's great. It's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of little subtle clues that happen throughout the series that I really like. I right. really enjoy. Um, the governor has, has proven to be a really interesting, the, the television governor, a really interesting character in that yeah. I know a lot of people that I have conversations with the show who for a long time have been subscribing to the idea that the governor's not really that bad of a guy. 
Right. Well, and, and you know, you, the, you, you sort of, I guess, maybe kind of got a sense of that in the scene where um, he has uh, Herschel's daughter, and it looks like he's going, you know, she's, she's been forced to take off her shirt, and then he comes in and he kind of, in that horrible way, stands behind her, and he's going to touch her and stuff, and then he leaves her. Now, in the book, something much more nefarious happens, but it, it, in the, on the television show, um, the rape, the, the forcible rape doesn't happen. And so you could, I guess, suggest that he has some sort of morals in that way, that he was just trying to humiliate and intimidate her, but wouldn't actually violate her in a physical way. But still, he's not a Christian. Well, so what's been interesting with the governor is I find that um, the way to understand him is to judge him not by his words, but by his actions. Right. Because right. he's become a very, uh, he's a person I think who is, who has developed a very effective facade that is very useful towards his purposes. And that's the town of Westbury. They're kind of like a, um, a pack of sheep for, uh, where the wolves kind of hide in there. He can go off and, and slaughter a bunch of Marines and then come back and go, oh, I'm just the leader of a little town here full of, you know, peacekeeping people. Uh, you know, in this episode alone, he said several times to Andrea, I need you. We mm -hmm. need you. But, of course, it's the opposite because the moment that he's off having a conversation about it, it's like, yeah, I'm not sure we can trust her anymore. We need to, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, well, he, he tells people what they need to hear in the moment. And, you know, it's sort of an interesting character study uh, who believes him and who doesn't. I mean, these townspeople, things are going pretty well in the town. You know, uh, they have food. There's uh, They have, you know, now granted their entertainment's a bit on the hardcore side, you know, pitting people against zombies. But, you know, they, they have a life there that they simply wouldn't have outside the walls of this compound that they're in. And so they're probably not digging too deeply into what the governor's actually doing. They want to look to him and go, he's a great guy. Look, we're safe. We have a life that we wouldn't have had uh, if, if not for him. So we're not going to, uh, you know, scratch around and see if there's any uh, skeletons in this guy's closet. Because, frankly, we don't want to know. Things for us are going really well. And it's an interesting, you know, character study of, of people uh, probably having an inkling that all is not right, but not doing anything about it because it's not really affecting them. In this episode when you know things start to go a little bit wrong inside the compound first thing we want out you know and the, the governor isn't as effective uh, a leader at that point then it's it's you know the dynamics are changing a little bit right yeah i think he's reached a point where he starts to feel almost um a, a sense of relief you often see him kind of as as the chaos is happening that he doesn't seem to be terribly disappointed with the situation sort of coming to a, a point of destruction that he's kind of relieved to no longer have to be the the politician or the, the leader of this particular pack that's right yeah well yeah yeah he's a psychotic person and he was but he probably thrives better in chaos you know <laughs> yeah. uh, I like one of the, the, the things that characters will say that make a lot of truth. I mean, one of the strange things about the, the governor was uh, his uh, aquarium of zombie heads. And I've, mm -hmm. I've tried to create our own little version Good here. Work. Yep. Good work. Yeah, yep. of, of my own little uh, polar out without spilling water all over the place. If I wind this up. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of chattering teeth there. Um, but you know when he first um, when they first discover the tanks of, of heads, 
and Andrea comes across and he gives an excuse. He says, well, you know, they're there to remind me about the horrors outside that we all have to kind of deal with. I take on, you know, he's, he's putting on the story that it's a responsibility he's had to take on for everybody else being the, the big victim that he is. But it's funny because at a point in the story, uh, Michonne points out that, um, that actually they're trophies. She mm -hmm. gets it right away. That what you're looking at is not him trying to take on responsibility for the town of Woodbury. They're his personal trophies of people mm -hmm. that he has outsmarted. He's uh, been the better survivor. And this is a reminder of his sort of superiority at the end of the day. Yeah, like serial killers, uh, you know, keep an ear or a piece of clothing or something to remind them of their victory, of their, of their kill. He uh, just happens to be a bit more extreme. He keeps head. <laughs> <laughs> still kind of like, you know, half alive heads uh, in an aquarium. Yeah. That's a very psycho idea. Is that from the comic book? That's from the comic book. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's funny. Um, I don't know if you, you stick around to watch The Talking Dead, which is their Sometimes. little they have. Yeah. See, uh, I don't want their yeah. ideas in my head, so I don't, because uh, we're going to talk about it and stuff, so I don't usually. Yeah, well, Robert Kirkland, who's the creator, was on the show um, for this past episode, as well as, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the actor, and I apologize for that, one of the, the, uh, the werewolves from True Blood. True Blood, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was on there, and at one point, because he's read the comic books, and I thought it was interesting that that kept coming up. I always feel guilty when I say it. Oh, but in the comic books, this. I want to sort of stop doing that, but it was interesting that he kept referencing it, and he, he mentions how things in the comic books get to be a lot more darker and then at one point turns to Kirkland and says you're an evil messed up guy because I mean right. the comic book does go oh horrible horrible places yeah that guy's name is uh, Joe Manginelio Manginelio yeah seemed like a cool guy yeah yeah I've interviewed him he's a good guy I agree yeah. he was in a movie called Magic Mike with that's Matthew right Friday. yeah I interviewed him yeah um, so what do you think about um, uh, Glenn? I think there was a bit of a, a lot of people had questions after last week's episode about Glenn. Why was he getting all huffy and testosterone-y up in Rick's face? Why was you know Maggie running away from him? What was going on between those two there? Well, I'm not really sure what's going on with him. I mean, it's a, it's a, it, again, it's an interesting character arc. It's a, he has changed from being the kind of meek and mild guy that he was in the first season or two to someone who is his boss. And I think now he has something to lose, you know, other than he's got, you know, that he has a girlfriend that, um, he clearly is, uh, is in love with her. He now has something to lose. And he, if he starts to see it all crumble and no one else is, is, uh, um, uh, doing the, you know, what he thinks is the right thing he's going to become a problem. And he also thinks that Rick is crazy now. So he doesn't want to put his, his trust or his, his, uh, his uh, fate in the hands of someone who is unstable. Well, and I guess he feels like he's starting to be put into a position of leadership at the worst possible moment. Right. You know, it's, it's one thing when you have all the people that you need around you, when you've got good resources, when there isn't a threat coming by, you're just wondering if there will be a threat, and then assume the post of being a leader. It's another thing entirely when you know that there's this huge, very hostile force that's going to come and attack and all the strong members have either left, have been shot, are, are going crazy, and right. now it falls on your shoulders. So, I mean, you know, I guess it makes sense that Glenn's kind of not losing it the way that Rick is losing it, but just not handling things very well. 
Yeah, I mean, again, you know, these people are in a pressure cooker. I mean, one of the things <clears throat> about each of their living environments is that it's really claustrophobic because, you know, doors have to be locked and there have to be fences and you have to, you're, you're always about keeping people out, keeping even people, not zombies, keeping other humans out. You're all about protecting your space. And I mean, I think the show might have, it would be interesting if you really got a sense of how claustrophobic it must be. Because there's there's enough scenes that happen, uh, you know the, the the prison yard is fairly big. Uh, there's the, the the gates and the the uh, the fences and things are all chain link, so you can see it. So it looks it looks more expansive. But I think from a character point of view, it would be interesting uh, uh, for us as viewers to get much more of a sense of how closed in and penned in these people must feel. You can't go beyond the gates as we saw at the end of this week's episodes, when you do really bad things happen, you know, and whether it's zombies or the governor or whatever, something not great is going to happen if you leave there. But visually from a, in a purely, you know, cinematic way, you don't get that feeling because uh, it's open. It feels open. I'd like to see it just like angles and shadows and, and darkness and feeling like there's nowhere to go. And every time you turn around, there's a locked door or there's something. And that I think would, would really heighten the feeling of anxiety that these characters must be feeling. And then when Rick loses his mind or when Glenn starts to behave in the way that he's behaving, I think you'd understand it more. Then it doesn't look so irrational. It doesn't look yeah. so foreign. Uh, from what's going on. Uh, yeah, and you know, uh, being in that prison, it, although it seems rather safe and secure, you got this major problem in that there's the back end of the prison and who knows what may suddenly come working their way through. It's not just having to be worried about all the zombies which are there and crawling yeah. around. You know, it's hard when you have to try to sleep and you know that maybe 50 feet, 80 feet away is a door that the handle could slowly start <laughs> turning open and you get zombies coming in, but also that human beings have been pouring in through that, that back section as well. So constantly it's, you know, the, the claustrophobia just isn't just the walls that are around you, but it's also the, 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 the fiends that are in your mind, all the yeah. things that are behind those walls or behind those doors that may be coming after you as well. Yeah, and I think, you know, I mean, the show is, listen, it's, you know, I'm, I'm hooked on it. I'm watching it every week, so, I mean, they're doing something right. But I, I would like to see a little bit more, a little, just a little bit more of, or feel a bit more of that anxiety. And I think that it might be, you know, psychologically, it might work a little better. Like, you know, if, if, uh, if you watch The Shining, which is a movie that uses claustrophobia pretty well, if you, uh, do, well, actually don't watch it. Put it on in the next room. This is how I discovered how effective so many elements of that movie are. So you have, you know, the the, the feeling of uh, it being open until you're in the, the 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 maze, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, it's very closed in. That's an allegory for the hotel as well, right? The the, the hallways in the hotel that kind of lead nowhere, and it's a huge building. But once you're inside, you're in these weird little spaces, and you don't really know where you're at at any time. So. There's all that. Visually, that, uh, Kubrick is obviously masterful at, at, at displaying all that. But sit in the next room, have it on, and uh, listen to the soundtrack separate from the visuals. And I swear to God, it will make you so tense. It will, it, it, because it's this really uh, anxiety-ridden electronic score that will just 
make you want to crawl out of your skin. And so the combination of the two is why The Shining is a movie that is now, you know, sort of well-loved and regarded as a classic because those those things work so well in concert. The Walking Dead doesn't quite have that. It's nicely directed. It's it's thriller. I You know, it's it's got a lot of elements that work really, really well. I would like to, to have the anxiety level of the viewer ratcheted up a little bit. Uh, yeah, I think sometimes it, it's almost a series that forgets that it's a genre series. Yeah. That you are dealing with elements of horror, that you are dealing with um, situations that are meant to be ratcheted up. They're meant to be you know, abnormal, supernormal. Uh, and so sometimes when it, it get, falls back into a situation of just dealing with relationships and whether this person's going off and getting supplies, whether this person, you know, feels like they have a good role within the group, they kind of lose that element. You have to always kind of come back to it. Right. But I think that in some ways, though, I think that, you know, one, part of the genius of the show is they actually make you care about the people before they kill them. You know, and uh, the, the guy they killed this week, uh, <laughs> Axel, Axel. Uh, you know, he, he just seems like a nice kind of guy, offering, bringing a shovel, offering to help those people bury their Deborah, bury the dead woman. Uh, he's talking about how, you know, he was kind of wrongly convicted, you know, kind of, sort of. But then he kind of liked being in jail because in here things make sense. In here there's rules. Bang! And he gets blown away. Just <laughs> starting to get to like this guy, you know? And uh, uh, I just thought, you know, like – that is part of the thing that this show does well is it lets you get attached to people and it's not afraid to kill them off. And, you know, they're probably not going to kill off Rick, although who knows? I mean, I thought this week, I thought it might be coming. I thought it might happen. I thought, you know, with, with uh, Glenn kind of on the ascension, you know, and, and starting to sort of assert himself more, I thought, well, maybe that means that Rick is on the way out, you know, who knows? But, but I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of the show is they found a balance um, and, you know, it does the thriller stuff really well. Like that image of uh, the, the truck full of zombies, well, we don't know what's in it yet, but that image, you think, you know, this truck crashing through the gate of the, of the, uh, of the prison, and you think, what the hell's going to happen? And then the back flops open and zombies get out, like loads of them get out. It's awesome. It's just an awesome thing. And it's such a, like, that is when, like, the genre, the, the, the genre stuff, it pushes it a little bit much or a little bit past the envelope and it's good it's good that stuff's really good i like that as i say just a little bit more i want to feel slightly more uncomfortable when i watch it and well, you know i think i past the point of feeling uncomfortable when they just split open zombies heads i mean occasionally now you go whoa that was a good one you know but other than that you know it, it doesn't have the same effect on me that it did after the second season when nothing much happened, and then all of a sudden in the third season, they're killing zombies every 30 seconds on the show, every 10 seconds on the show. And, you know, in really grim ways where the heads being split open and, you know, all that stuff. And you think, wow, you know, this is, this is really something. And, but you know, you, you work past that after a while because they've killed so many zombies. There's only so many ways you can see a head get split open and still be really affected by it. Yeah, although I have to say, you know, uh, best zombie kill of the week was uh, when uh, the the hatchback, they closed the door. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Daryl, man, like, who would have thought that Daryl was going to end up being the sex symbol? Did you read Twitter? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Women love Daryl, and uh, uh, the line that seemed to do it, for everybody was uh, when his brother goes, well, there's that Chinese kid, Meryl. That Chinese kid, I beat him. I can't go back there. And uh, Daryl says, he's Korean. 
Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, and all, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you've got this redneck again in one line. I mean, you you sensed this all the way along that he was good-hearted and that you know he sort of, but you never really knew, right? You know, and, no. and you know, and you didn't know what was going to happen when Merrill came back and that sort of thing. But in one line, in two words, all of a sudden you realize, wow, this guy has changed. This guy has you know actually has an arc, and you know the the great thing, Glenn has an arc. Glenn has changed a great deal. Uh, Daryl has changed a great deal. Merrill still essentially the same guy. I mean, yeah. he's a survivor. He'll do what he has to do to survive. But, you know, there's some really interesting writing happening here amongst these main characters. Yeah, oh, completely. Uh, and I love what's going on with, with Daryl. Um, strange how he just – I want to see a movie where Daryl Dixon runs around rescuing babies. I just <laughs> hysterical when he was like is that the sound of a baby and it yeah, yeah. was running off you know i mean that was just oh, i love that yeah. that is fantastic yeah i know and you know i mean i would have thought that he was maybe an unlikely sex symbol but uh you know he's like a i don't know a jeremiah johnson like the man the mountain man who you know uh has a a, a great big heart but you know knows how to skin and eat a squirrel you know he's yeah. that guy yeah. yeah, and his his uh, decision to sort of make the the crossbow his iconic thing, yeah. which apparently comes from the actor more so than it does from the the script or or anything like that. Um, uh, other actors have said no, that that was something he decided. The actor decided at a certain point that he was always going to be associated with this crossbow. He apparently takes the crossbow home with him after they've done shooting, in order to kind of you know have that connection with it. Uh, that moment in the season return where he runs up and he grabs the crossbow from the other guy. I mean, that's that's all his idea of, of making it kind of like Michonne's swords, where it's it's a small little thing says a lot about the character, but defines him in superhero parameters without having to give him special powers. Yeah, well it does. And I mean, it, again, you know, it, it speaks to where he came from, right? I mean, he's, you know, the backwoods kind of guy probably, you know, went hunting with a, with a much less high tech bow and arrow when he was a kid and it's become his thing. But it's also, you know, killing somebody with a, a bow and arrow it's a little different than shooting them. It's a little different than, you know, like it, it's more personal, right? So it, it, it becomes, you know, you, you learn something about him uh, by the way that he kills people. I mean, you shoot somebody on this show, you shoot them in the head, they fall down. You, 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 you shoot someone with a bow and arrow in this show, it's often he's doing it at close range, and then he's got to go over and pull the arrow out of the person's yeah. head and shoot him, you know. And and it's 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 more of an up close and personal kind of thing. And he doesn't seem to have a problem with it. So you know, it, it tells you that he's a you know he's rough and tough. But then you see him, you know, rescue a baby or you know he's Korean, and all of a sudden you understand that you know there's more to him than that. And you know, probably uh, more. Uh, he's he's he, that was probably always there in his personality, but the way he grew up and all that, he was never allowed to. You know, he had never been exposed to anything else other than his brother Merrill and the stepfather who apparently beat him. You know, and so he's changing a great deal, and it's uh, it's, it's really interesting to see. I hope they don't kill him off. Uh, you know, well, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, every, every most of the fans are out there. Most of the fans that are out there have sort of threatened that they will stop watching the show if they ever, you know. Yeah, it would be a mistake to get rid of him. He's He really is truly one of the great characters on the show. And he he, he didn't start off that way for me. 
You know, he was, no. you know, and, and, and that's just sort of happened recently. But, uh, no, he's good stuff. That's they, They've got to keep him around. And it's interesting that uh, through him, he's sort of setting up uh, an opening for Merle to come back into the group. Yeah. Which is insane because Rick has just chased away Tyrese and his wife, two of yeah. the most rational, smart, intelligent people that have come along in the entire series. Let's yeah. make them go away. He's trying to get rid of Michonne, which for some reason I don't understand why they keep writing it so that all the characters seem to hate Michonne, even though we all know that she's one of the most valuable people to have there. Well, she's brave. You know, she seems to have no fear. She's, you know, she always, I mean, occasionally acts in self-interest, but not that often. I mean, normally she's out there, you know, uh, defending and, and, you know, she's the first one to run in and start, you know, chopping the heads off zombies when, when necessary. So, yeah, I don't know really exactly why they're, they're, uh, they're trying to uh, downplay her a little bit. I'm not sure. I'm not sure either, but I mean, it's it's crazy. She does have some weird racial politics, and we've discussed this before. Yeah, and so I don't know. Maybe I mean I can't imagine that that has any that plays into it at all. But I mean, she has no lines essentially. No, she, you know, I mean, I, I just, you know, I I don't really get it. I don't really get it. And it's it's odd because again, uh, you know, she is constantly on the covers of many of the magazines and the comic books. Uh, when we were at Union Station, and I was talking to a lot of those girls, they were looking at the main zombie and saying she looks like Michonne. She looks like yeah. Michonne. So there, there's a lot of sort of idol worship that's going on from a lot of young girls watching the show. It'd be a mistake to, I, you know, they have to start to kind of give Michonne a little bit more of a stronger role, uh, yeah. more appreciation on the show. I think. Well, she's badass too, right? Yeah. You know, you, like what you want, I mean, for these female characters to to get those young girls that we met at uh, Union Station during this big Walking Dead thing. I don't know how old they were, 14, 15, 16 years old. Yeah. Keep them watching a show where, you know, most of the show is cutting zombie heads in half. You have to give them something more because they're not going to hang around for that forever. And part of the way you can do that is uh, the, the, it's the Katniss Everdeen uh, way of keeping, you know, people interested in a girl, young girls interested in an action story. You make the heroine, you know, a kick-ass character. And Michonne's got all the qualifications, but yet they're not doing it. No, I don't know. I don't understand. And part of it may be that they're planning far ahead. Um, the, the whole situation with Tyrese was strange to me because they went to such great lengths to sort of set that up. Yeah. That we had this entire sequence where it was just Tyrese and his group all by themselves. We go through this whole back and forth of getting them into the prison. And then suddenly it's, no, get out of here. And they're gone. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, what's that about? Why invest so much time and energy in characters that you're just going to send away? Hopefully that means that they're going to come back later in a much more important role. But I, I don't know. I mean, well, that's the thing about this show, right? They can disappear. I mean, Merrill is gone for a season, you know, and then comes back. So you never know, right? I mean, the whole idea is that people are wandering, they're coming and they're going, they're freaked out. They go, they come back to the prison. They, you know, whatever. Like there's, there is, Unless you see someone's head get cut in half or see them actually being eaten by a zombie, don't count them out. Don't count them out. They, they may well come back. Well, it's funny because um, Kevin Smith, the you know director of Mallrats and, and other great films, has been campaigning to say that Laurie isn't actually dead because you never right. saw an actual body. You know, 
<laughs> and he well, wants it. But that's one of the things. That is a film thing. That is yeah. a total film thing. Like, if you're going to kill somebody in a movie, you know, it, you if you're if you're li a literalist, you show the body. Here, audience, this is what we've just done. This person is dead. You know, because if you don't, there's always a possibility that that you know that they were still breathing or that whatever. And you know, in a court of law, man, you don't you know if you if you uh, don't have a body, it's how do you prove a murder if you don't have the body, right? So um, I think uh, it's 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 a. I think she's dead. I mean, I think I think she's dead. And I know there's zombie eater is what I think, but yeah. but, uh, but he might have a point there, you know. And I'm sure the actress that played Laurie is really hoping that Kevin Smith is right. He's <laughs> probably ever going to have. <laughs> well, and anything to get her out of just standing there in a back backless dress. Yeah, in a white flowy flowing very, dress. Yeah. No lines. Very thankless task right now. Hopefully that gets better for her. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things they're doing, which I think is pretty cool, is that they're going to uh, show the episodes all in black and white as well. Right. I mean, I don't know. At first, I'm a bit cynical about it. Uh, this is obviously a way to, to make more money off the, the show well, they've already... Well, it's a total way to... to it, I mean, it's totally cynical. I mean, uh, the, Andrea said to me, I was like, why would they do this? And I said, well, there's two reasons. For one, it's an homage to Night of the Living Dead, Romero style, you know, the way most of us first saw zombies. And secondly, it's a way to sell advertising again for a show that's already run a whole lot of times and make it event TV again. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. But still, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I do like it. Um, it'll be interesting to see because, I mean, black and white does, I mean, it's bizarre to say that black and white is being used as a marketing technique just to make money. Yeah. And for years, nobody will go and see a movie that's in black and white. Well, um, it, it'll be interesting to see if anybody watches, like to see what the numbers are, because if nobody watches this thing in black and white, it, it, you will never see a black and white image on television again, on network television again. If nobody watches this, this is it for monochrome, you know? <laughs> Now, there's a, a big mystery in this past episode, and I wanted to see if uh, what your thoughts were on it. And I don't know if it's something a lot of people have picked up on, because I didn't see anybody discuss it on Twitter. But when that van yep. smashes through the front gates, right. uh, and I was, and even though I knew it was coming, because that happens in the books, but I right. wasn't sure if, in this case, who would actually be driving it. I mean, it could have been Glenn coming back. Yeah, uh, see, that's what I thought, yeah. Yeah, to, to, to come to the rescue, right? Yeah. But... Uh, Something very interesting happens and in that the, the van goes through, smashes through the gates, and in that sequence you see a lot of generic sort of henchmen. There's mm -hmm. the guy that's up in the tower, you know. There are a lot of roles that are on movies and television shows that can be fulfilled by a stunt person. Well, we yeah. need somebody to drive this through, so, you know, that kind of thing. But they actually cut that sequence after the van has, has been driven through. Uh, then we get to see the back half and it poops out all those zombies. But then something interesting happens in that they do a completely other setup. They put the camera in another place and purposefully show the driver getting out. Yeah, wearing um, sort of like a, a, a like body armor, it looks like, and like a, a some sort of protective Kevlar mask. Yeah, and I, I realized this isn't just a case of, well, we need somebody to drive the van and so your crew member to kind of get dressed up. Right. No, they've gone to great lengths to hide the identity of yeah. who this person is. And so I'm wondering if you have any theories as to who it might be. I have my own ideas. Um, and it's interesting because when I first saw the person, I started to think about who it might be. This is a very thin, 
almost effeminate person that's jumping out at my first thought was that it might have been a woman, but I'm not entirely sure that's true. Well, I think it might be Milt, the, the, uh, the scientist from the governor's compound. Yeah, that, that's my guess as well. I mean, it's interesting. He doesn't usually get involved in this kind of thing. though. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think they've done, whoops, Richard has momentarily left us. He will be back, hopefully, in a couple of seconds. But it's interesting, as I was saying, uh, the identity of who this person is. Right. It's interesting in that, um, you know, they kind of did a bit of a rope-a-dope in that they had that earlier sequence where Andrea is at Westbury and she's looking for the governor right. and she calls on, on Milton and Milton says, oh, he's off, you know, running some sort of task. So you have it in your head, okay, well, the governor's off, obviously attacking right. the, the prison. So if she's talking to Milton, it can't be Milton in the van. But I'm, I'm thinking they've set it up for that confusion. I, I do believe it's Milton. I think after... Do you think Milton, it is? Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, I think after he spoke well, to Andrea, he went off. You know what makes me think it's him is that the 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 costume the 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 protective costume is fairly meticulous and that's that would that would fit in the pieces fit in with his character and the sort of meticulous nature of his character and also that he doesn't really do anything except drive the van through he's not shooting people he's not doing you know any of that stuff i mean it's a you know it's a huge thing to drive a van through this thing and let zombies out but um it wasn't you know it, it wasn't like why send someone in who's good with a gun. You don't need someone that's good with a gun. You need just someone who can put the pedal to the metal, trip the, the door in the back, and then run like hell, you know? And again, I think it might have been Bill. Yeah, I, and, and earlier on, uh, when uh, the governor has that big speech with Milton, he tells Milton, you're invaluable to me, yeah. which of course means he's not invaluable. No, I moment. thought he was going to go. I thought that was probably it for him. Yeah. When the governor says that to you, it means that you are now d dispensable. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that explains why, you know, he, that was him trying to seduce Milton to go off and do this thing, which was basically a suicide mission, to drive yeah. a, a van full of zombies into their compound. But. <laughs> Very crazy. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of sad that they, they kind of package their action as sort of these cliffhanger moments at the end of the episode. I would like to see them do an episode where there's a lot more of these action comic book sequences, but that they take place over a longer period of time. Rather than making it 10 minutes, give us a good solid half hour of uh, a lot of these characters jumping around and doing these, these cool comic book things. Yeah, except that I thought, yeah, I agree with you, but I thought or was surprised that we saw as much as we did in this episode. I thought as soon as all hell started to break loose, then somehow I wasn't really looking at the clock. I thought that must be the end of the episode. And we'll have to, that, that's the cliffhanger that's going to make us tune in next week is to see this big battle. But now, you know, and I even tweeted something like, you know, somebody, uh, let's see if I can find it. Somebody, somebody tweeted something and I wrote, yeah, and we'll see it next week. But no, it, it, it came right back at us, you know. And, like, there's another show called The Following that I've been uh, watching a little bit. It's Kevin uh, Bacon. Okay. And he is an FBI agent. This is network television, not cable, right? So it's, 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 it's incredibly violent, but in a much different way than, than uh, The Walking Dead. And so he's an FBI agent who is uh, working uh, to uh, create a case against a serial killer. He already put him in jail once the guy escaped. Now they've got the guy back in jail, but he has a following, and his followers are doing things. And the end of Monday night's episode, last night's episode, was uh, a classic 
cliffhanger that wouldn't have been out of place on Dallas or a soap opera or something. And it kind of pissed me off after the walking dead, you know, leading up to this thing, showing us a good chunk of it. Now there's a little cliffhanger thing that happens. Obviously you want to keep people tuned in, but it was satisfying, right? You saw enough of it that there was, you were kind of like, okay, I'll get I'm good. I'm good for another seven days. Whereas uh, this one, uh, just kind of leaves you hanging, like kind of nothing much has happened. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, there's a moment and I'm doing this. Like I've got a gun. That's all. I'm not going to tell you what the cliffhanger is. But there's a moment where, you know, you're, you're, uh, you think, okay, well, finally, now something great's going to happen. Something interesting is going to happen. And then it's like, who did next week? And I'm like, ah, you know, it was a burn. The Walking Dead's thing was much more satisfying. The way that it was paced up until you know, uh, up to this this cliffhanger that they that they provide. Well, and satisfying because they they uh, gave us a moment where the characters that were hoping, you know, they, they set up these kick-ass characters, and finally, finally, they give us kick-ass moments. Yeah. You have the great return of Daryl Dixon, and, and wonderfully, you know, Rick is there up against the fence. He's got three zombies on him. You think Michonne's going to come over and help him, but no, no, she's got other people to go rescue, and it's like, ah! And, then, and that was really <laughs> cinematic, the way he came back, too, because you don't see him. You see his bow and arrow, and you're like, oh, you see an arrow go through the yeah. zombies, and and you're like, well, there's only one dude that can do that. And uh, and then, but then you see Merle behind him, you know, killing people with it, whatever. And so that whole, like, that's the clever. What's going to happen to this guy now, you know? Merle's an interesting guy because he's not so much uh, a character as he is a situation. And, you know, Merle happens at yeah. certain points. <laughs> Uh, and, and right now, you know, Merle's there because it suits his interests, because yeah. he needs to kind of go along with this. He wants to be with his brother. But at a certain point, he's not going to feel like he's in control of, of the situation anymore, and he's going to end up sabotaging or being very self-destructive. So it's going to be, you know, that, that that's, as Hitchcock would say, that's the bomb that's underneath the table. We're going to watch for the next couple of episodes while Merle is amongst their group. And uh, <laughs> that yeah. precise moment that you, the last thing you need is for somebody to go off and, and betray everybody. It's yeah. going to happen and horrible, horrible things will, will descend. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's, it, it'd be interesting to see what happens next week because the end of this one was good, but this show is not disappointing me. Like so many other shows, there's very few, there's really very few shows that I'm like, Oh, I got to see that every week. I have to see it. The Walking Dead is pretty much it, and uh, and it doesn't disappoint me. It doesn't let me down. Like they'll have you know slowish weeks, like a week ago, but still, you know, something happens. Enough happens that you can kind of you know you stay on board with it. And then you know you get an episode like this week's, which as you know, my friend on Twitter it started off all meh and then went whoa, you know, and <laughs> and it's true, you know, it's a, it does go whoa, and you go wow, this is really really great. Yeah, it's, it's good. It, and it's setting up things that it promised that it's got a long storyline to it. You would oh. think that any kind of uh, story that involves, you know, the world ending and zombies is only going to last a certain amount of time. A finite amount of time, yeah. Yeah, you, you've only sort of, you know, explored what, what's possible there. The moment that everybody gets used to the fact that there's no more telephones and there's no more airplanes in the sky, then it should get boring. But no, they're, they're sustaining it uh, quite well and quite successfully. Yeah. Well... well because, because, and I think my, you know, my final thought is that they've created real characters. They've created characters, uh, a, a very diverse group of characters, and real characters that you that you care about. 
and you know you want to see what happens to them and they're they are uh uh clever enough although some would say heartless enough to kill off some of those characters every now and again they'll, they'll kill someone that you really that you grow to like and so far it hasn't felt manipulative to me you no. know, because again, that's another thing, right? It's another thing that that you can do if you want to really, you know, put the screws in. You, you, you have someone commit a heroic act, and or die in the middle of committing a heroic act. You know, uh, and and you know that is a, a manipulative way of trying to make you feel for them. But these characters, they they ramp it up. That whole second season was about letting you get to know them, whether it was on purpose or not. I heard they just sort of ran out of money. Yeah. <laughs> and that's why the, the thing was shot on a farm for the second season with like virtually no special effects or zombies or anything. But, um, but it, it worked because you got to know the characters, you got to sort of get under their skin a little bit. And then in the third season, you know, all of a sudden when they start picking them off or, or whatever, they start losing their minds. You, you, you're invested in it. Completely. Uh, that, that's good for, that's good TV. Well, we're, um, I think we've, we've talked about this for almost 40 minutes. Uh, uh, was there anything else that you had to, to talk about this week? Not really. I mean, there's the, the, the only thing that, because it's Oscar week, hmm. this is all I'm going to be doing this week is Oscar stuff. Um, uh, and I'm just going to, there's a Harvard student who has done something interesting. He is, he's a Harvard mathematician, and he has taken all the data, uh, you know, all the, the movies that have won awards at the DGA and the, the PGA and the, you know, Golden Globes, everything. And he has assigned a score to all of that and crunched all the data. And so um, for Best Picture, for instance, he calculates that Beasts of the Southern Wild and Amour have only a 1% chance of winning wow. because of the math leading up to uh, versus Argo, which has a 60%. The next one down, Lincoln. With nine percent, so if you're betting, bet on Argo. I trust this guy. I think um, Ang Lee apparently forty-eight uh, percent for Life of Pi. You vote for Life of Pi. This would have been a much different race if Ben Affleck had been uh, nominated, but he wasn't. But it looks like Ang Lee has a forty-eight percent chance of winning uh, versus David O. Russell for Silver Linings Playbook with thirty percent. Best Actor was seventy-four percent is Daniel Day Lewis for Lincoln. Best Actress, Je this was a surprise to me. Uh, 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 Jennifer Lawrence for Silver Linings Playbook uh, at sixty percent versus Jessica Chastain with Zero Dark Thirty uh, at only twenty-five percent. I would have thought. I mean that those were a little bit closer, a little bit tighter. Uh, best Supporting Actor, Tommy Lee Jones for Lincoln, 43%. Uh, best Supporting Actress, Anne Hathaway was 69%, blowing away all the rest of the competition. Um, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, if you can find this online, mm -hmm. uh, let me just see. It's, it's, it's worth having a look at. The guy's name uh, is Ben Zausmer, and it's uh, Z-A-U-Z-M-E-R, Ben Zausmer. Uh, Google him and, and have a look if you're filling out an Oscar ballot. I'll be interested to see uh, how much of this is right because, you know, the, the Oscars are, are uh, voted on by so many people that I kind of refuse to believe that you can use a mathematical uh, formula to figure out uh, people's emotions and figure out all that stuff. But then you have the guy whose name slips my mind right now. Yeah, that got absolutely everything right in the uh, the uh, last election, the last U.S. election. So, 
and he did it using a, an algorithm. You know, he figured it out, uh, uh, you know, using in, a, in a very interesting way. Big data, uh, which yeah. is, is, you know, a lot of people are really, it's sort of, you know, um, becoming very, very, very popular. It's, it's a way that people are cheerleading maths and sciences and saying, yeah. yes, this can be important. It can have an impact on the world. Yes, we need to subscribe to science as being a, a tool to try to understand things rather than always having to go off of, of people who are using charm or, you know. <laughs> yeah. So this is sort of, I guess, a, another example of that being applied towards the Oscars. Yeah, no, but it's very interesting. And I mean, you know, there are predictors for sure at the Oscar. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, you know, you, you think that, okay, like Miz probably isn't going to win because the last time a musical won was Chicago in 2002. And before that, it was uh, Oliver in 1968. And in total, since 1928, only nine musicals have won Best Picture. So Les Miz likely not, just given the, you know, the preponderance of, the, of what's happened before, the preponderance of the evidence of what's happened before. But this guy has boiled it down to a much more even exact science. And, and I, I think it's kind of fascinating. And uh, I will be keeping an eye on Sunday, uh, very close eye, to see how, how dead on this guy is. Well, and there's always been uh, that element that many of the categories, they have their own separate sort of awards that are out there, like the Annie Awards for animation, for example, or the, the Actors Screen Actors Awards, that themselves are predictors because the exact same people voting on those awards are going to be the ones voting for the categories in the Oscars. Well, exactly, yeah. Yeah. But what's interesting about big data uh, with Nate Silver and the election and this fellow here with the Oscars is the suggestion that comes out of it that a lot of the answers are already decided well in advance. Right. That it is tempting to think that at the last minute, the last week before election, the last week before the uh, Oscar uh, ballots have to be deposited, that there might be this element where people might change their minds based on you know some last minute move that's happened. And, and out of Nate Silver's come the suggestion, no, no, that doesn't happen at all. People have pretty much made up their minds about who they're going to vote for president or who's going to be best picture months in advance. That, that all the other jockeying for position that goes on really doesn't have much of an impact at the end of the day. No, I, well, and I, I, I think that's probably right. I mean, the, the uh, nominations, nobody knows who's won yet. The nominations, the ballots, finally. Uh, well, what time is it here? It's 5.30 here. They probably got a couple hours in L.A. to get them in. That's it. The, the deadline is today. Okay. And, uh, so it'll be, you know, it, it'll be a couple of days anyway before even Price Waterhouse knows who won. And then it'll be, a, you know, Sunday until we know. So this guy has gone out on a limb before, you know, the, the ballots were even cast or, or, or completely cast uh, with these. And I think that's really interesting. So Sunday. Let's see if uh, Argo, Ang Lee, Daniel Day-Lewis, Jennifer Lawrence, Tommy Lee, and Anne Hathaway win. But he hadn't stopped there. I mean, he goes all the way down to uh, Best Original Score, which he thinks is going to be Michael Dana, Go Canada, guys, uh, Canadian. Um, uh, you know, Best Sound Editing, all this, all the categories that nobody ever gets right. He's managed to, uh, to come up with a numerical uh, figure. So, you know, Best Sound Editing, predicted winner Skyfall with 44% of the vote. So, wow. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Very, very cool. Uh, well, I wanted to briefly talk as our last subject, and I'll try to keep it short because I think we're, we're getting maybe well past our hour. I'm not sure. Uh, they need to put a running clock so we can – I know. We don't have one. I know. We don't have anything like that. Uh, and you seem to have frozen for a moment. I can hear your audio, but I'm not getting video. Uh, really? I'm moving. I can see myself moving. 
Okay. Well, I'll, I'll assume that uh, Google. Oh, there you are. I'll assume Google's recording. It's just my feed. It's a little damaged. But I wanted to talk uh, today about the modern equivalent of the Fiji mermaid. So let me pull up here a little screen share. Oh, where'd it go? Ah, I was trying to get the image of the Fiji mermaid. And right. now the Fiji mermaid uh, is a notorious hoax, I guess is the best way to describe it. It is a, um, uh, back in the day, you go back a couple of centuries, you had people running around the world visiting new uh, places like Australia, New Zealand, and encountering all sorts of incredibly new species and bringing those species back for museums and, and other things. And people were astounded by all the creatures, you know, long-necked creatures of giraffes, and, and eventually you get to exotic, exotic animals. That's it, right there, That's yeah. The mermaid right there. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the thing about it is that when these people were looking for these animals, they were willing to pay a pretty penny to get their hands on some of these exotic specimens. And so there were some fishermen who used to, as part of their craft, they would do a, a kind of taxidermy. And right. when they heard that there were naturalists that were running around willing to pay large amounts of money, and specifically for anything that was considered to be mythological, if there were people in villages that were talking about some large creature that had all these different characteristics, naturalists would pay a lot of money to get that specific specimen. Right. And so with lots of tales all around the planet about mermaids, these fishermen, very clever uh, fishermen, would actually marry the front half of a monkey to the back half of a fish. And they would get large amounts of money for these specimens, and it wouldn't be until they got back to the museum the naturalists would realize what exactly had gone down. Right. And it's a big, notorious fake. I mean, uh, P.T. Barnum bought one. He exhibited across the United States. Some people have made a lot of money off of this particular hoax. Uh, and today they're, they're collectible amongst people who are – uh, curiosity hunters and seekers and have exotic sort of stuff well, in their homes. Your, yeah, your video that you showed a few weeks ago of the guy with all the animatronics and stuff in his house, he has a Fiji mermaid. That's right. Lord British yeah. uh, has one. The Ontario Science Centre had one on display when they were talking about myths and legends as being something that, you know, it's just, it's become iconic for the idea of what people will do to, to kind of bring myths uh, to life. Right. Uh, and history has a way of repeating itself. There is actually a modern equivalent of the Fiji mermaid, and it's been around for many years. Uh, people have been selling it. It's a hoax. It's a scam. It's incredible. Uh, it's, it's come back. It surfaced this week recently because it's shown up on Kickstarter, of all places. There's a, a company that says that they've got you know this, this, this creature and they want to sell it to people. Um, so here I'm going to show you what it is. And it's very – you can see why people get sucked into it. It's a, it's a device that they call – uh, the Amazing Jellyfish. There we are. Or the, the Amazing Jellyfish Lamp, to be specific. Right. Okay, and what you're, you're looking at, the, of course, I'm going to tell you what the story is, what the fake story, what the scam, the hoax story is, and then I'll tell you what it really is. So the, the, the scam is that what they're selling you here is a real jellyfish right. that has been preserved through taxidermy techniques within uh, a, a bubble of glass. Right. And the, the story goes that not only do you get to see the preserved beauty of a jellyfish caught in glass, but thanks to the fact that the organism's own uh, natural bioluminescence, when night falls, it actually will glow. Right. And so that's why they call it the amazing jellyfish lamp. Right. Okay. Right. 
Uh, and they're, they're now actually offering this on uh, Kickstarter. We're already, it has raised $14,000 wow. uh, from people who I'm, if you're watching this, I'm sorry to tell you, you've been sucked in. And, and so this is a, this, this is a company that wants to sell these and they need money to start their company, right? So that's what the Kickstarter campaign that, is all Yeah, that's what the Kickstarter story says. So they've got a little video. Of course, the video doesn't actually show any real jellyfish. It doesn't show any kind of facility, right. but they've gone this long spiel where they say they need a new, um, is it a, a, a kiln, a, fur, a furnace? They need a new furnace for whatever reason. Uh, and they, they promise that the jellyfish that they use in their, their pieces are uh, jellyfish that have died of natural causes. They're not killing any jellyfish. Don't want to be mean to the jellyfish. Don't want to be mean to the jellyfish. And that they have found this technique that allows them to preserve the jellyfish in glass. And if you buy them, uh, then what you're going to get is a, a beautiful jellyfish that's in your home, and when the lights go down, it glows and it's all mysterious and, and quite beautiful. Uh, so <laughs> that's the story. Uh, now, what it is really is just a glass sculpture. Right. For many, many years, and I know this. Uh, my father, uh, for a long time, was a, an antiques dealer, so I've seen there are there's techniques that you can do in glass sculpture, where as uh, the glass is sort of cooling, you insert rods and things like that that secrete kind of colored uh, material. Right. And people have been doing this for years in terms of creating little flowers inside the glass vases. We've seen that. Well, yeah. I guess, I don't know, a decade ago, uh, artisans, I'm assuming in South Pacific Asia, somewhere around that area, figured out how to do this to create jellyfish. Jellyfish are very popular in Asia. In Japan, people actually keep them in aquariums in their home. It's, right. uh, it's amazing sort of pastime. And so someone figured out how to actually create glass sculpture. That's all it really is. Yeah. Um, and what they've done is as they've added the, uh, the material, so you know they, they put in a rod and they create a bloom initially, and then right. they slowly pull out little streams of, yeah. uh, of material. That material, in addition to being sort of a colored ink, they also apply a glow-in-the-dark substance to it. Right. So yes, it is true that if you have one of these and you leave it on a windowsill where it gets lots of sunlight at night, it will glow, but just a little bit. Right. 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 Uh, what you're seeing in the photograph, where it looks like it's all lit up, that's where they sell an additional LED base. So there's right. a base that it sits upon that sends light up through the glass, and of course glass is very reflective, and the light kind of... Well, I mean, you know, the, the interesting thing is, I mean, it's kind of beautiful. I mean, it, like, I don't know why you would have to sell it as this fraudulent thing, when it, in of itself, it's, it's, you know, quite a lovely thing. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, there are two factors to that. One is that because this is something that comes from, I believe, Asia. I'm not 100%. These things are always hard to chase down. But they're, they're, there's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhere in, in Taiwan or China, there's this small factory that's just pumping them out. Right. And so they can be sold very easily for very low cost. Right. Uh, the second thing is that, again, it's price. So when you apply this, this story of trying to convince people that they're buying some preserved jellyfish and they're told, look, we, we, you know, we're limited in the number of jellyfish that we can use and we only use the ones that are died of natural causes, it becomes easy then to sell something that should only sell for $40 or $60 and instead right. sell it for hundreds if not thousands of dollars. Right. Now, the reason I know all about these uh, these things. It's it's funny because I was having a conversation with the gang at Daily Planet because they were actually contemplating doing a story on this uh, until their research showed that, yeah, it's fake. Uh, it's a big hoax. But the reason I know about it is because when I was in San Francisco, I saw them in a shop. 
And um, my head did a bit of a spin when I first saw it because I, I looked at it. From a distance, they do look like jellyfish. And, and my brain kind of went, wait a moment. If you could preserve jellyfish like this, why aren't museums around the world doing this? Yeah, yeah. Very good question because you go to a museum and they have taxidermy mammals. They have reptiles. But undersea, underwater creatures, very difficult. The moment you take them out of the water, gravity does something completely insane to them. They just fall apart. It's really, really hard to preserve them. So in my mind, I'm like, my, my rational mind is going, this can't be true. Because if it were, the Smithsonian, the American Natural Museum, would just be all over it. Yeah, jellyfish um, I saw this in a store called Love to Death, which is the West Coast version of the store in Oddities. Right. So in Oddities, New York takes place in Obscura. Oddities, San Francisco takes place in Love to Death. And uh, I held it up, and uh, over uh, came uh, this lovely woman. Uh, her name is Wednesday Morning, and she's one of the hosts of uh, Oddities, San Francisco. She's also much like Mike and Evan, who you've met, one of the proprietors over at Love to Death. Uh, and I have to tell you, also in person, one of the most beautiful people I've ever come across. Wow. Yeah, a very beautiful woman. It took me a while to recover the power of speech, right, 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 you know, right. that kind of thing. But I had asked her about it, and she said, oh, yes, this is fake. It's a, it's a hoax. They sell it as a collectible uh, hoax because, of course, people like to have Fiji mermaids. Yeah, and now yeah. you can have the, the Fiji mermaid, and you can have the amazing jellyfish sitting next to it. But she said for many years, people have been selling this on eBay. And, and trying to, you know, convince people to pay large amounts of money. eBay, of course, you know, where you have bidding wars and people can spend huge amounts of money. And then they find out it's just a piece of glass. Right. And so because she had it at her store, I had a chance to actually hold them and take a look at them. And when you get up close, you can completely see it's just glass. It's just right. little tendrils. There's no organic matter in there. Uh, she was kind enough to give me a back room that I could take it into to see how well it glowed. And confessed, yeah, it doesn't really glow. That's why we set a little LED base that goes with it to kind of light the whole thing up. So I, I thought that was interesting that, you know, things that we feel become antiquated, that go out of date, no history has a tendency of repeating itself and coming back with a more modern variation of it. P.T. Barnum, there's a sucker born every minute. Someone, like, if you put something out there and, you know, someone will buy it, chances are good that you'll, you'll get some sort of... Uh, bang for your buck out of it. They got $14,000 on Kickstarter right now. So, you know, don't buy it. Uh, especially <laughs> don't invest in it on Kickstarter. There are places that do sell it, and they're upfront about it, and you pay very little. They're, they range from, I think, $25 for the small ones, and then right. it goes up to about $60 for the medium size, and then 120 You should not be paying a lot of money for what is really a very beautiful piece of, of glass art. I would have no problems buying it as a piece of art. No, exactly. That's the thing. Just sell it for for uh, a tchotchka, and you know that 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 seems okay. Yeah. yeah. No, they they have um, keychains, which is also ridiculous. That you know they're trying to. Suggest little jellyfish. Yeah. Yeah, little <laughs> jellyfish that 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 small that you could put into a keychain. It's pretty hysterical, but it's a very convincing. Um, you know, pitch that they have on Kickstarter. If you're not asking critical questions, if you don't stop and sort of say, "Well, wait a moment, why don't they have?" They have this video. They, they just show a counter with all these glass sculptures on it, but there's no actual video of a facility. You don't see any actual, you know, jellyfish. There's little hints that something's not quite right. But as you pointed out, it seems like an odd scam because you, part of your brain's thinking, "Why would you need to trick me into buying this? It actually looks beautiful as mm -hmm. it." Yeah. Well, because, you know, I don't know. Anytime there's a way to make more money from it, I guess that's the, that's the whole thing.
There is, and then I guess there's also the satisfaction that you feel that you're tricking people. Right, yeah. Some people get into it for that that reason alone, or the yeah. ease that you can trick people. Um, you know, you, you find a distributor in Taiwan, you buy an entire case of these glass things, you pay $5 each, and then you go online, and you convince somebody to give you $300 for it. So, right. ah, too bad. It's such a crappy yes. world we live in sometimes. Uh, be sure to join us again next week. At Hey All You Zombies, in the meantime, HeyAllYouZombies.com, still chugging along, open 24 hours a day. There's all sorts of stuff up there to have a look at. I'll uh, post a link uh, to uh, Ben Zausman's, uh, let me just check that, Zaumer's um, uh, site, so you can have a look at his predictions and, uh, you know, in a few days from now, see how accurate they were. And St. Valentine's Day was last week, and I posted a couple of Valentine's zombie love signs. <laughs> on our website uh, and we're on iTunes and Mixcloud uh, I've been going through the back catalog I'm about halfway through but you will be able to by next week we'll be perfectly synchronized you can catch us as an audio enhanced podcast on iTunes or on Mixcloud and then video right here on fabulous fantastic YouTube All right. see you next week